a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace and the final installment of the Lent series, The Many Faces of Jesus Before Easter. We will have one wrap-up session next week. If you've missed any of the other episodes, um, you can check them out at oldbookswithgrace.com or listen to them at the podcast provider of your choice. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, PhD in medieval literature and a big fan of children's books. I'm glad you're listening. Today, we're thinking about Jesus in mortal suffering, medieval depictions of the crucifixion. In many ways, the specter of the passion has been lingering in the corners and hovering all around the edges of the prior images we've examined together. If you think all the way back to the beginning, in Jesus the Judge, angels holding the instruments of, the, of his passion, nails, crown of thorns, spear, cross, swarm around him in triumph on Judgment Day. In Jesus, our lover, the broken-hearted lover Jesus offers his body to show his commitment to the lost souls he so adores. In Jesus, the night, the cross and his death and hell comprise the great joust and battle that the night undergoes to rescue the helpless. In Jesus of the university, Thomas Aquinas wonderingly asks if the passion was necessary. In Jesus, our mother, Jesus' passion becomes the agonizing labor pains that bring forth new life. In the institutional Jesus, Jesus' blood constitutes a narrow gate that only those that the institution deems is correct can pass through. And now, here we are, finally, to face the cross, the most ubiquitous image of Jesus in the Middle Ages, and to gaze on Christ's broken body with the medieval faithful. Today, we prepare our hearts for Good Friday. I had a hard time writing this post for two main reasons. One is that this image is everywhere in medieval literature. Picking out particular words and imagery to focus on felt like drinking from a fire hose. The other is that this representation of Jesus that we are the most accustomed to of all of the medieval and ancient images of him. 
It's shocking that the image of someone being nailed to wood and slowly dying can become commonplace, but we're incredibly used to it. Crucifixes and crosses are still in churches. We see art depicting Jesus' body all the time. We're not like the character Maybe Bluth in my all-time favorite TV series, Arrested Development. Not the reboot, though. When she realizes religious kids get to skip school sometimes, she asks, Do you know where I can get one of those necklaces with the T on it? Unlike Maybe, we know what the T on all those necklaces actually represents. But with that familiarity, we can become inured to the depths of that T. So today, let's allow this image to become strange again to us. I'm going to give you a series of vignettes to hopefully help us enter into the medieval mindset of approaching Jesus on the cross. It's Good Friday in the late 14th century. You live in medieval London. You're attending your parish church on this most holy day. You stand alongside your neighbors during the service because there were no pews back in the day. Maybe you sit or kneel on the ground occasionally when your legs get tired. At the front of the church, a crucifix has been erected. All the parishioners take turns creeping to the cross, as they called it, crawling on their knees to kiss the wooden image of Jesus' suffering. Imagine getting down on your hands and your knees, young and old, to creep forward to this image of pain and divine love. You move forward slowly with your neighbors and family on your sides. There may be some dignified jostling, but this is the high point of the whole year and everyone is solemn. There in front of you is the crucifix. You get there and you pause for a moment, looking at the decoration on it, gazing at Jesus' painted face, his pierced hands and feet, the thorn of crowns on his head. Then you kiss him, where your neighbors have also kissed and touched. And you turn around and you crawl slowly back to your spot. Perhaps you're thinking of the ache in your knees, certainly made worse by the stone floor. Perhaps you are watching another person who recently lost someone to death. The death you know has been destroyed by the very cross you just venerated. Maybe you are extra aware of a neighbor you keenly dislike performing the same ritual over to your right. Or maybe you identify with Christ's pain because you also know love and suffering. And the tears drip down your face as you ease your body back into the crowd of people. Identifying with Jesus in his suffering was an imaginative exercise often encouraged by medieval thinkers. Many folks, lay and clerical, imagined a Jesus on the cross who spoke to them personally. Here's a sermon from Easter Sunday recorded in the Speculum Sacerdotale, a sermon collection. Imagine the crucifix in the church as he speaks, visible for anyone to look at, as he, the parson, urges them to listen to Jesus' words. 
Beholdeth before you the figure of our Redeemer Jesus Christ, as he hangeth on the cross in the same form that he suffered death in and brought mankind from the pains of hell. Wherefore he crieth and saith to us each day in such words, Listen, man, listen to me. Behold what I suffer for thee. To thee, man, well loud I cry, for thy love thou seest I die. Behold my body, how I am hung. See the nails, how I am through stung. My body without is beaten sore, my pains within be far more. All this I have suffered for thee, as thou shalt at doomsday see. This little poem that the parson quotes is one example of an extremely popular genre of poetry where a suffering Jesus shows his wounds and speaks to someone passing by, revealing his love for them. This emphasis on the cross as evidence of divine love was more broadly popular than satisfaction theory, the idea that the cross satisfies our sinful debts and makes us right with God. Medieval people definitely believed in many different models of satisfaction. It's not that they didn't believe that. However, by the late Middle Ages, especially outside of specialized, trained university theology, people considering the cross laid much heavier emphasis on receiving those emotions connected with Jesus' human suffering and love than on thinking through the mechanics of Jesus' divine intervention. In another late medieval anonymous poem, the voice of the viewer wrestles to reconcile love with love's suffering. Christ maketh to man a fair present, his bloody body with love burnt. That blissful body his life hath lent for love of man that sin hath blent, blinded. Oh, love, love, what hast thou meant? I think that love to wrath is went. Thy lovely hands love hath torn, and thy lithe arms most tightly stretched. Thy body, or thy breast is bare, thy body bent, for wrong hath won, and right is shent, ruined. Thy mild bones love hath to draw, think of like drawn and quartered, drawn, pulled out. The nails thy feet have all to gnaw. The Lord of love, love hath now slaw slain. When love is strong, it hath no law. Love, love, where shalt thou be? Thy dwelling place is taken from thee. For Christ's heart that was thy home, he is dead. Now thou hast none. Love, love, why doest thou so? Love, thou breakest mine heart in two. Love hath showed his great might, for love hath made of day the night. Love hath slain the king of right, and love hath ended the strong fight. Love maketh Christ thine heart mine, so maketh love mine heart thine. Then should mine be true all time, and love in love shall make time end. That's from Medieval English Lyrics, a critical anthology edited by R.T. Davis. This poem is an elegy for what the speaker perceives as the death of love. Wrath reigns supreme. It seems as though right is ruined and wrong has won. And the strangeness really emerges in that the speaker understands love as having slain love. 
Christ's love and his submission to death allows the death of love. Much of the poem is spent grappling with the bizarre fact that Christ's love sent him to death. There are more stanzas, but I've cut them for the sake of space. With the resurrection, the speaker ultimately realizes that love is not dead, but in fact has triumphed, and concludes this description of love's suffering in the cross by asking for love to grow in his or her own heart. This love-oriented emotional response to the cross developed later in the Middle Ages. We can see this transformation through some examples in art. If you go to look at the blog, oldbookswithgrace.com, you can see them for yourself. I'll describe them here as well. A particularly interesting example from an earlier time comes from a now-destroyed 12th century manuscript called the Hortus Deliciarum, a sort of medieval encyclopedia developed and written by a nun called Herod of Landsberg. In this depiction, Jesus looks sad and blood does drip from his hands and feet, but it's a pretty calm scene. There's a certain serenity to it. Almost all the figures in the frame gaze at him, like Mary and some of the disciples and um, the centurion who speared his side, um, including some dead people coming out of the ground and a very solemn moon and sun. Those are probably my, my favorite pieces of this picture. There are also some symbolic theological elements. The veil is being ripped above Jesus and a female figure, Ecclesia, riding on a four-headed beast that represents the Gospels, holds up a cup to catch the water and blood pouring in a graceful arc from his side wound. The two, the only two in the picture not looking at Jesus on the cross are the thief who rejects Jesus and a figure for the old covenant a woman who clutches the stone tablets of Moses but hides her eyes. It's a scene meant to provoke theological reflection and instruction about salvation. The portrait isn't meant to portray the ravages of bodily suffering, and it's not meant to be realistic. We can contrast this depiction with some art from the later Middle Ages. A fresco from Fra Angelico painted sometime between 1436 to 1445 on the walls of the convent San Marco in Florence shows a more realistic scene. The two Marys weep with their eyes covered and facing away from the unbearable sight. Christ's blood has run down the cross and started pooling on the rocky ground. It seeps into the earth as if to redeem the very soil. It reminds me of Julian of Norwich's description of her vision of Jesus' blood. Seeping down from his face in supernatural abundance to redeem the whole world and its people. She describes this blood vividly. It patterns and pools like the scales of a fish, dripping and covering her vision. And Fra Angelico's fresco, as well as Julian of Norwich's vision, belong to a larger trend— In general, later medieval portrayals of the crucifixion became more focused on the blood and the wounds of Jesus, more focused on Christ's suffering and Mary's too, and geared to provoke more of an emotional response in the face of this bodily violence and pain. 
Another famous and powerful depiction of the crucifixion is the altarpiece painted by Matthias Grunewald at Eisenheim from the very tail end of the medieval era. It is a massive piece. Christ on the cross looks close to life-size. Again, check this out on the blog. See the pictures for yourself. This Christ is in absolute agony. His fingers curl and flex in torture around the nails embedded in his palms. Mary, his mother, looks like a corpse herself as she swoons, paler than the white clothes she wears. Mary Magdalene's own fingers, as she clasps them in prayer, take on that same shape of suffering as Jesus's, flexing in bodily, catastrophic grief. Jesus's face is turned slightly away as his head droops. He's on the verge of death. The crown of thorns, unruly, scrapes his neck. His lips look dried out. He thirsts. And his body is covered with incredibly realistic sores. These sores and their realism have made the Grunewald altarpiece at Eisenheim the source of many discussions because it was painted for the monastery of St. Anthony there. The monks at that monastery were known for their hospital, which cared for plague victims and those suffering from skin afflictions like leprosy. The marks on Jesus' body look remarkably like these skin conditions. Patients at the monastery could look at this massive picture of Jesus and see the God who looks like them, who partook in their suffering, who dwelt among them. Jesus suffers with you, says this painting. Jesus suffers like you. Jesus suffers for you. I looked at quite a bit of medieval art and read a lot of um, kind of boring but strange medieval poetry to prepare for this episode. In that process, I accidentally came across an actual photograph of a crucifixion from the early 20th century. Thanks a lot, Wikipedia. And it was horrifying. It brought home to me the shock of the crucifixion as never before. How could it be that something so hideous brought forth salvation? An innocent man was butchered by the united powers of the best human hopes for order, peace, and justice in the world, religion, and government. And this corrupt, ugly act, transformed by Christ's voluntary suffering, communicated and wrought the most beautiful and unexpected thing ever encountered in our world. Unconditional salvific love and peace for all. No one could have guessed it. No one saw in advance how this would be transformed into the gift of life. Though his best friends had heard promises and hints from Jesus, even they couldn't envision how beauty could come out of suffering so deep, rejection so immense, ugliness so overpowering. It's commonplace to note that for the last century or so, we've separated ourselves in the West from death and suffering. Caring for the extremely ill, 
um, the dying and preparing bodies for burial used to happen regularly in homes in the normal places humans lived their lives 100 years ago throughout as long as people have been in existence. Now these events usually take place in hospitals, hospice, and funeral homes supervised by specialists. Moreover, death in general was far more ubiquitous for medieval folk. Of course, we know everyone will die today. Everyone loses loved ones at some point. But the average age of mortality in medieval Europe was about 30 years old, according to scholars of the Middle Ages. To put this number in perspective, most people who lived to 21 lived to about 55. Why is that first number so low? It's because the childhood mortality rate was so high. So many people, if they were lucky enough to make it to adulthood, lost their children. And the medieval era suffered a series of terrible plagues that killed people of all ages, including the Black Death, which wiped out a third of Europe in 1348 and then kept coming back in waves every few years. It wasn't a one-time event to destroy communities. Death was everywhere. Medieval people made images of the cross that echoed their lives and deaths back to them, just like the altarpiece in Eisenheim. It was not just a mirror image to their pain. The bloody body on the cross was a promise and a companion to them in the precarious frailty of everyday human existence. I know you can't see a way out of this pain right now, speaks the crucified God to his medieval watchers. But love will be triumphant over betrayal, abuse, isolation, pain, and death. I feel what you feel. I know what you know about both the pain of the spirit and the body. Look on me and love. Because of the pandemic and recent social upheaval, this is the closest we as Americans or Westerners have been in at least 50 years to the broad scale medieval experience of suffering in everyday life. For many years, we have not been this collectively aware of the fragility of the body, both the communal body politic and our individual skin, bones, sinews, breath. I have hope and sadness when I consider the cross. Hope is both a practiced habit and a gift as medieval people knew full well. I hope that out of this mess, we can practice a hopeful honesty in looking at ourselves in our limited bodies governed by our limited minds. Perhaps we will work towards recognition of who we are as embodied mortal people, good and evil, ignorance and great ideas intermingled in each one of us. Gaze on the crucifixion and reflect on what Jesus says to each of us. Like the medieval folks teach us, the watchers in the complicit crowds at his passion. I hope that the pandemic will, in its aftermath, 
prompt reflection on what a crucified God means when He tells us to love. Here's some thoughts for your Lenten practice this week. Think of these medieval poems with which we began, where Christ speaks to you, a viewer from the cross. What do you think he says to you, specifically? I really love the hymn by Stuart Townend, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It's beautiful. It includes the line, It was my sin that held him there, referring to the cross. Medieval people like Julian of Norwich or the anonymous lyric poets we read would have countered. They heard Christ say, it was my love that held me there. Does this change your idea of the cross and how you approach it? And finally, give yourself time and space to mourn this week. Cry. Listen to sad music. Check in on a friend who is suffering. Weep with those who weep. For the murders in Boulder and Atlanta. For the victims of the pandemic for Jesus on the cross, for the ways in which you've been wounded. Embrace the medieval tradition of recognizing love and suffering in the figure of Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. Thanks for listening.